Hi-ho, this is Jordan from August 2022. I just wanted to give a quick pre-introduction to my real introduction, since this interview with Barry Deutsch is when I recorded last May. I owe Barry a huge amount of thanks because he made this whole podcast project possible when he agreed to do this interview despite not even knowing me at all. Once Barry said he'd do an interview, that gave me the motivation and morale to reach out to other cartoonists and media critics, and you're going to hear those interviews in the next few weeks. Right now, you'll hear my conversation with Barry and me. And please join us in two weeks to hear my three-way interview with Barry and his colleague and collaborator, Becky Hawkins. Last thing to note, as I stated in my actual intro for this episode, all the comics Barry and I mentioned are listed in the show notes with time codes, and they'll also be posted to Drawing Controversies Twitter and Instagram. Though Barry and I do our best to describe the cartoons as if you've never seen them before. I also want to credit the guy who did my podcast cover artwork, Keshav, here instead of at the end of the episode, because at the time I originally created this podcast, I didn't even have official cover artwork. So anyway, here's the real intro. Hi-ho, this is Jordan, and welcome to Drawing Controversy, the podcast that covers contentious cartoons and the people who make them. You're about to hear my interview with Barry Deutsch, the genius mind behind the comic website Lefty Cartoons. I had a great time asking Barry about his career history, the reality of making web cartoons for a living, and how he integrates his leftist views into his work. I've provided in the show notes links to the specific lefty cartoons that Barry and I discuss. Follow at Drawing Controversy on Instagram and Drawing Contrav on Twitter. Leave a review for the show if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. And let's get to my talk with Barry. I am so happy to be joined by cartoonist Barry Deutsch. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Jordan. Can you please just tell everyone about yourself, but also what got you to the place where you're now making Lefty Tunes? Okay. So I'm a cartoonist. I've been wanting to be a cartoonist since, I guess, junior high school or so, but it was a very long process for me. At one point, I attended the School of Visual Arts in New York City, where I was very privileged to take classes from Will Eisner, who was one of the most important cartoonists in American history. And the Eisner Award, the industry award in comics, that's the equivalent to the Oscar or the Tony, is named after Will Eisner to give you an idea of how important a figure he is. I didn't think initially I was going to be a political cartoonist. I had always had the goal of creating comic books, graphic novels. At the University of Massachusetts, where I wasn't a student, but everyone assumed I was because I was young and I was there all the time, I did a daily comic strip in the Collegian, the school newspaper. And that was very valuable practice for me because it was drawing a comic strip five times a week. And having that deadline and that motivation to practice that much improved my drawing enormously. But that was just like a gag comic. It wasn't political, especially. But then when I went to Portland State University later, I thought, okay, I'll revive the comic strip. But The PSU Vanguard, their student paper, did not do story comic strips or gag comic strips. The only comic strips they had any space for were political cartoons. So I said, okay, I'll do political cartoons. And so I did a weekly political cartoon at the Vanguard. And for a student cartoon, it did pretty well. It won a couple of Oregon Newspaper Association Awards, and it won the Charles Schultz Award uh, for college cartooning. And that was neat because they flew me to Washington, D.C. to present the award. And then, you know, I thought I'd continue with 
political cartooning. And political cartooning at the time was dying as something that people could do for a living. Newspapers were shrinking. Newspapers were firing cartoonists. And of course, newspapers were going out of business. So that entire business model, being a cartoonist, was on its deathbed. So it was not a good time to try and be a political cartoonist for a living. And then I decided to make a fantasy adventure comic called Hereville about an 11-year-old Orthodox Jewish girl who wants to fight monsters. And without even meaning to, I created a middle grade graphic novel. And the unintentional move from a dying field, political cartooning, to a living, growing field, children's graphic novels, was amazing. Like suddenly, it's not that I totally suck. I can earn a living at this. People do want to publish my things. I just need to be in a living field. So that was a huge difference for me. And I could finally quit my day job and be a full-time cartoonist. I still did political cartoons occasionally. And eventually, Patreon became a thing. And suddenly, we had this new model under which it was possible to earn a living as a political cartoonist. And so I've been splitting my time between middle grade graphic novels and political cartooning in the last several years. And it's been wonderful. Doing political cartoons where I can do cartoons about whatever I want, and I don't have to convince an editor it's a good idea, and no one is supervising me, is really great. And it lets me do cartoons about subjects that I think other cartoonists aren't doing, either because they're not financially viable or because, more likely, they're just not interested in them. Yeah, so I wanted to go into that. What is kind of the reality of making work that is completely online. And I think of my godfather, he's an author and a writer, and he's always told me if he had a kid, he'd kind of give them the whole don't do it talk because there's so much grueling hardship, you have a low chance of success. And even then, when you have something consistent, it's hard to say what counts as making it. And I wondered if you felt the same about cartooning. Well, I got that talk from my father once. <laughs> so before Hereville, I mean, Earning a living in the arts has always been difficult, and it remains difficult. From my perspective, if you're a cartoonist who's actually able to make a living through writing and drawing comics, that means you're a success. Maybe you're not like a Jim Davis Garfield success, but you're a success. You won. If you could do it for a living, you won. So by my standards, therefore, I won. I can make a living at it. But it's certainly not anything that's going to make me wealthy. And it's certainly the case that the vast majority of cartoonists are eking by not having enormous financial success. But that's okay. Well, now do you feel the same way about making cartoons that are very left wing? Because I figure it's hard enough to go through everything you just described as a cartoonist, but it's even harder to win over people with the opinions you're likely to share on your lefty tunes? I honestly don't know. I mean, because the most popular comic in the world is still serving a niche audience. Rena Telejabir's Smile is one of the most popular, widely read comic books ever published. It has a much better claim to being a mainstream comic than a typical Batman comic, for instance. But still, the majority of people haven't read it. Even the majority of 11-year-old girls haven't read it. And that's about as successful as you could get as a cartoonist. So definitely my political cartoons are aimed at a niche audience of, I don't know, I guess left of center, left of mainstream Democrat readers. 
but not so far left that I'm actually advocating for violent revolution. So that that is my niche. And I don't know that I'd have a larger niche if I was more of a mainstream Democrat, because maybe there's more people there. But on the other hand, there's also more competition. What do you think made you that type of leftist? I'm still in my 20s, so people are want to dismiss my opinions as like, oh, well, you sound like some 19-year-old SJW on Twitter, but I can point to someone like you. It's like, no, 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 look what this guy says. Yeah, uh, what a nice way of saying I'm old. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, it's hard to point to any one moment because I was pretty left-wing in high school. When we invaded Granada, I organized a little protest in my high school cafeteria. So that was during the Reagan administration. My parents were both liberals. I came to it that way. I think that my general range of views are pretty common amongst Jewish people of my general age range from the Northeast. So I don't think I came upon it in any special way other than I was raised that way. I want to go into some of the subjects you like to put in your cartoons. And I actually wanted to cite white people with subtitles. Mm-hmm. To anyone who hasn't seen it, it shows a bunch of white people. And it shows what they really mean. Funny phrases, funny alternatives to what they mean when they say things like, it's not about race, or I have a friend of color, how can I be a racist? My favorite was, Judeo-Christian values built this country gets translated as, if I put Judeo at the start of sentences, I sound less like a Christian theocrat. And my question is, without the internet, how did you even talk about some of the things you put in your cartoons to your peers, especially in a time where they might not have been likely to agree with you? Before the internet. Wow, that's going back a long ways. That's never really been an issue with most of my peers, because the first college I went to was Oberlin. Right. And at that time, the internet was in its infancy, but we did have like a campus internet. And we spent a lot of time on this campus shared web thing. I don't even remember what it was called. So I've always had peers who agree with me. And in fact, peers who are well to my left. And honestly, I've always enjoyed talking to people who disagree with me. When I can find a right winger who's actually willing to engage in, you know, polite, friendly disagreement, I enjoy it. When I was in college, I was on the debate team. And the reason I did it is because I find it fun. You know, that's a quirk of my personality. And many people would argue with some justice, it's also a sign of privilege that I feel able to do that. Although in my own defense, I also enjoy debating about topics that pertain to me more personally and directly, like fat acceptance. But there's never really been much to it. I guess I take the issues I care about very seriously. I don't necessarily take any particular argument I'm having with another person at this moment very seriously, because there are tens of thousands of arguments that people have in a lifetime. Each particular argument is inconsequential. So it's not really a good use of my time or emotion to get angry or stressed about having discussions with people I disagree with. In fact, it can be really advantageous to me. Being in a disagreement with someone motivates me to research and learn things in a way that I might not otherwise. And it has been the source of so many cartoons. So I guess I would say this isn't much of an answer to your question, but it's just never been an issue for me. I do want to go on what you say, the source of your cartoons. Do you aim to be topical with everything you come out with? Or you see something on Twitter and you're like, oh, well, that makes me so mad. I better make a cartoon expressing my thoughts. Or is it just like, here's an observation here and there? Because sometimes I see something that's like, well, I don't care what year you put it out. It could have been made any day. 
I actually work to avoid being topical because my goal with my cartoons is to produce cartoons that will last. When I first started doing political cartoons back at Portland State University, probably half the cartoons I did were about George W. Bush or about just an issue that was in the headlines that week. And those cartoons do not last well. I look at them now and they're not good for the most part. And no one would have any reason to read them. And it takes me so many hours to make a single cartoon. The cartoon you mentioned before, White People with Subtitles, I worked on that here and there, not in a continuous fashion, for years. I wrote the original script and I kept it in a folder where I keep strips in progress. And every once in a while, I'd return to it and I'd edit it, I'd revise, sometimes I'd do a doodle. I'd say, oh, that one's stupid. And I'd throw it out and I'd put it in another. And then after a couple of years from this, I felt like I had a solid eight panels that I could actually draw. And the drawing itself takes days and posts. And I don't want to do all that for a cartoon that's only going to be good for a week. That would be ludicrous. So my usual goal is to do cartoons that barring some wonderful, beautiful change in our civilization, will be relevant for years to come. On the other hand, I do sometimes get mad, definitely, about current issues and inspired by current issues. So then I'll be like, okay, is there a way I can make this into something that even though it's something that made me mad this week, is there a lasting issue underneath this that I can do a cartoon about? And sometimes I do that. Sometimes I just give up, though, and do a cartoon about the current thing. Like I've done a couple of cartoons mocking the way the right wing has fixated on critical race theory. And those cartoons, my guess is that in three years, no one but political addicts will even remember what the heck PRT is. Political addicts and actual law professors, I mean. But for the most part, I try and do cartoons that I think will be relevant for years to come. I want to contrast two different types of cartoons you've come up with. There's one which is kind of like a standard cartoon. It's four panels, two people talking to each other. And the joke is it's an unemployed person who's told like, yeah, like I need food stamps because I'm unemployed and I don't have any chance of getting a job right now. And they're being told like, well, you have a phone, you have a car. doesn't sound like you're struggling. And after getting rid of the phone and cards, like, okay, now I can get my food stamps. The punchline is, no, we're going to shame you for that anyway. There, there's that one. But then there was another really detailed one you did. Do you remember? It's the one about the tri-heads and the blockheads. Yes, uh, that one was a collaboration with Becky Hawkins and Naomi Rubin. And I want to explain again to anyone who hasn't seen this one. It's a long story where a teacher reads a children's book. And the joke is rather than it being about, oh, there were two different people, the triheads and the blockheads. They were different, but they learned to love each other because it's what's on the inside that counts. Instead, the triheads imprisoned and enslaved the blockheads. The blockheads had to have a war to get their freedom. And to this day, even though they're technically both free people, the triheads complain about any form of current prejudice, current systemic problems. And my question is, how, how do you decide what type of cartoon warrants a quick punchline or a quick conversation or one that involves something like a collaboration or a fun story? Boy, I mean, it's not really a question of what warrants it. Both of those cartoons you mentioned are about really important to me ongoing issues. It's more a matter of, 
you know, I have the initial idea and what is the best way to present that idea, or at least the best one I can think of. In the case of the first cartoon you mentioned, Are You Genuinely Poor is the name of that cartoon. It's a very simple idea. It was inspired by people who say, oh, they can't really be poor. They, they own a cell phone, et cetera. Ignoring some fairly basic economics that you can, you know, people who are poor very often own long-lasting consumer items because they're long-lasting. They get them passed down from aunts or parents or something. I certainly have in my life. And also pointing out that the people who are saying you have to be genuinely poor before we're willing to help you are in fact simply unwilling to help. So that idea benefited from being boiled down to the smallest form I could get it into, which in this case was four panels. Because some political cartoons, you just want to get in and say, here's this idea. I boil it down to a way that will hopefully be entertaining to you because it is so concise and hopefully crystallizes this issue really well. It doesn't always actually do that, but that's my goal as a cartoonist. Now, in the case of the triheads versus the squareheads, that was more the entertainment value for that for me was in showing what these very trite young children's books about racism and prejudice would be like if they actually reflected real history rather than saying, oh, we mustn't judge each other by what's on our skin. End of issue. Both sides equally bad, which is a very naive take on what prejudice is like that you can find in a lot of uh, children's authors, including Dr. Seuss, since obviously the Sneetches were a big influence on this cartoon. And because the humor in that is actually in the book itself, in what the story is, as well as in the teacher's reactions to the story, it actually benefited from stretching it out and showing the actual story in a great deal more detail rather than trying to compress it down as much as possible. So that was the logic insofar as I have logic. I'm really glad that you like the try heads versus square heads cartoon, by the way, because I feel the three of us put a lot of work into that cartoon. And it was one that I don't think got a lot of reaction when we put it out. I actually have a side note question on that. How do you decide what kind of art style you want to use for cartoons? In that case... There were two collaborators on that one, both of whom are good friends of mine. One is Becky Hawkins, and she and I have done a lot of political cartoons together. And we also do a superhero webcomic together called Super Butch about a lesbian superhero in the 1940s who protects the bar scene from corrupt cops. And then there was Naomi, who is a wonderful cartoonist, a good friend of mine for years, but I've never collaborated with her. And I thought in this cartoon, having two different people draw it, one person drawing the real world and one person drawing the fantasy within the book world would be really fun to have that contrast of styles. So I thought of Naomi for drawing the fantasy sequence inside the book. And then Naomi and Becky are partners. So I think it may have been either I or Becky could have done a good job drawing the classroom scenes, I think. But I think that it was fun for Becky and it was fun for Becky to have a chance to collaborate with Naomi that closely. So that may have been the only logic. But as far as drawing style goes, there's a lot that goes into it. A lot of the collaborations I do with Becky are my frequent comic strips, which skip around through history. Like, here's an issue. And what I want to show you is how this issue has been with us for centuries. So here we see it in the 1600s. Here we see it in the 1700s and so on. And Becky excels at costume. 
and setting. She does a lot of things well, but that she's spectacular at. So I've drawn some of those cartoons myself, but very often when I do them, my first thought is, well, I'll ask Becky if she could do it, because I know that Becky not only enjoys that, but does a sensational job with it. Another example is Kevin Moore. This is kind of grosser, but if I do a comic strip where it's like, oh, someone has to draw like a flood of literal shit in this comic strip, I'm like, Uh, oh, I'll contact Kevin. Kevin loves drawing gross things. So perfect. And then there's also things like, you know, some cartoons seem to call for a more realistic cartoony approach where the characters have more realistic figures. For instance, it might be a mood thing, but it might also be just a simple thing like I have to draw someone working at a McDonald's counter in this cartoon. And if I draw them with peanuts proportions, little tiny body, huge head, then it won't make any sense for them to be behind a counter because what are they doing? Standing on a stool? So it's just easier to make it work visually if I use somewhat more realistically proportioned humans. Other times it'll be like, okay, this is super, super horrible stuff I'm drawing about, but I need to levit a bit if I want my readers to see the humorous side of it. And in that case, I might go for what I just called peanuts proportions. I might go for really pressing into being cartoony in order to kind of lighten the load of the cartoon a little from the reader's perspective. And it might also just be, oh, what do I feel like drawing this week? Because plenty of cartoons could work drawn in multiple styles. So much I didn't even think about, especially when you're talking about, I have noticed the, what you call the peanuts proportions. I do kind of want to talk more about the actual content or the text of your comics. I think there's this thing where the internet, specifically if you're like on Twitter, if you're only reading certain types of news sites, articles, you're, you're in a bubble. Mm-hmm. And that definitely applies to, I think, breeds of leftists like me and you. First, do you remember your comic? It's called Shut Up and Get Off My Side. Yes, It shows a bunch of people who, theoretically, they're more liberal. They have progressive values, but they don't mind saying things like, Ann Coulter is a man, or who cares what Trump said, he's fat, or who'd want to get an anti-choice woman pregnant. Things like, okay, we might not agree with those people. We might vehemently criticize things they say, but we're clearly part of the same problem if we're letting those kinds of comments slide. I think that's more reflective, though, of the world or like people I know who like claim to be progressive. They're more like that. And are you alienating those people by making your cartoon so unapologetically left wing and telling those types to shut the hell up and get off my side? As far as alienating fellow leftists go, I've done a few strips, which I would say would do that, which where I heard from someone that they're on the left, that they're angry. And it's not something I do for the fun of it, but it's something I feel like I have to do occasionally, a strip like the one you just described. Uh, The title of that strip, in case anyone wants to look it up, is Dear Some of My Fellow Lefties. But once I have an idea and I'm convinced that that would be a good strip, it would feel unprincipled if I didn't do it just because I don't want to piss off my fellow leftists. It would be one thing if I thought about it and realized, no, this is a genuinely bad idea. There was one strip about transphobia, which I wrote and drew, and I think I may have actually drawn it completely, or at least most of the way. I posted it on my Patreon before I ever posted it in public, and several of my trans readers told me they had a problem with it. And we discussed it for a while. In the end, I decided they were like, they were right. They brought in a reading of the cartoon that wasn't what I intended, 
that was a legitimate reading of the cartoon as I wrote it. And they were right. It was a cartoon that would have sent out a message I actually disagree with, even though that wasn't my intention. So I actually never published that cartoon. On the other hand, a cartoon like Dear Some of My Fellow Lefties or some of the anti-turf cartoons I've done. The anti-turf cartoons, by the way, are the ones that have definitely generated the most fury from people on the left of anything I've published. If the only reason I'm not publishing a cartoon is because I think it'll make people on the left mad at me, then that's kind of a corrupt reason not to do it. I will say, though, dear some of my fellow lefties, I've gotten almost only positive responses from. I think maybe because people, you know, there's like eight panels in that. So even if one of the panels describes someone and they were reading it, they still have the other seven panels where they got to go, ha, 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 those idiots who aren't like me. And so they enjoyed it anyway. <laughs> yeah, you bring up an interesting point, which is that it can be a tough job to even cater to people or even to make content for an audience that theoretically agrees with you. Does being able to get instant feedback through whether it's Patreon or the stuff you get on Twitter, does that really help you as you generate more content or just kind of think about like, well, when I do this, this is the likely reaction based off the last thing I did. The reaction can be really helpful. The reactions can point out something to me that I completely overlooked. That's obviously true. Just recently, I did a cartoon about how hard it can be to get photo ID. And I illustrated the cartoon with each panel showed a different person in a working class job talking about why it was hard to get ID. And in the original version of the strip, one of the people was an Amazon delivery person. And a couple of people, uh, one on the left, one on the right, who had total contempt for what I was saying, pointed out that Amazon delivery people have driver's licenses, pretty much by definition. Right. So I actually redrew that entire panel or not. I didn't redraw the background, but I redrew the main figure and made him into like someone who was moving the sofa. Uh, so that's a bit of, I mean, that's not a substantively important point, but it was a correction I got because I posted on Twitter. And there are times when I see, when I get corrections or reactions and I go and change the comic strip because of that. And again, it's sort of like, I'm not going to change a comic strip that I agree with because someone disagrees with it. But if someone points out something that obscures the point I was hoping to make, that points out something where I did something that would be a distraction from what I want to say. That is definitely something where I will think about and sometimes will actually do revision of the comic strip to try and improve it. So it is very helpful. On Patreon, it's especially helpful because those people see my cartoons a month or two before the rest of the world. So when they spot errors, I can actually fix it before most people see it. But sometimes I'll, you know, fix things in response to a reaction. You know, if lots and lots of people misread a panel the same way, I will look at, okay, is there something simple I could do that would make what I was intending to say clearer? And I think we're talking about mostly people who want to be on your side. You mentioned trans readers, trans fans who pointed out maybe where you'd missed the mark a little bit, but I'm thinking about, have you ever had someone tell you, you know, I used to be against this thing, but I saw your cartoon and now I'm reconsidering, or I still disagree, but at least I understand based off the way you presented that argument. Uh, yes, I have. The most successful cartoon on that, and this is getting to really narrow stuff that most people aren't familiar with at all, is I did a cartoon, a lengthy cartoon, one of the longest I've done, 
explaining why I think that people shouldn't use the term neckbeard and leftists shouldn't use the term neckbeard to insult right-wingers. And immediately I know when I'm saying that, that there's going to be a, a number of your listeners who are saying neckbeard, what is that? And like I said, it's pretty obscure stuff, but neckbeard is a term people use to describe a certain sort of stereotypical internet warrior who probably lives in his mother's basement, who's probably fat, who iconically is eating from a bag of Cheetos and who is typing on the computer for hours each day and who has a lot of stubble on his neck, which is where the term neckbeard literally comes from. And the term has problems, obviously, with being anti-fat and also with being ableist. A lot of autistic people have pointed out that the stereotypes used about neckbeards are usually identical to the stereotypes used to insult autistic people. So I did a long comic strip. Uh, I think it may have been just called Why You Shouldn't Use the Term Neckbeard. But that comic strip, as long as obscure it is, has had a lot of success for me in that I've posted it to people when they're using the word neckbeard and have gotten multiple people responding, oh, I've never thought of it that way. You're right. And say they wouldn't use a term from then on. So, I mean, it's about an obscure, tiny subject, but yay, it worked. I think that over the years, I've gotten a lot of nice, oh, hey, that I'm thinking about it, your right responses on the subject of fat acceptance and also on being against dieting, because I think it's a subject that a lot of people haven't read or thought a lot about. So in a way, that's low-hanging fruit. So, and a few other times, but that's rare. For the most part, my cartoons are liked by people who already agree with what the cartoon is saying. And they're just enjoying seeing what they already agreed with put in hopefully an eloquent way. That is something I was thinking about is you might get right-wing troll responses, but I'm also thinking about if they're like anyone I know, they probably just aren't reading those in the first place. In a way, the majority of people who've read my cartoon are right-wingers who hate what I do. <laughs> and that's because there's a genre of right-wing YouTube video where someone who's desperate to create weekly content, like The Amazing Atheist is the name of one YouTube channel with like a million subscribers, right. has more than once done a video where he's doing nothing but pointing his camera at one of my cartoons and reading it aloud so he can disagree with it and make fun of it. And it strikes me as so weird that that technically is some of the most widely read work I've ever done. Like hundreds of thousands of people have watched those videos. And exactly, you know, I'm, sometimes I thought of, you know, emailing him and asking if I could get paid a royalty or something. Or at least promote your Patreon. <laughs> yeah, because I'm sure his readers will be very eager to support my Patreon. But Exactly. But, you know, it's fine. And for the most part, certainly the readers who are supporting me are nearly all readers who agree with what I have to say. But that's okay. If all my cartoons are doing is providing some comfort and support to leftists, I think leftists need some comfort and support. I am not unhappy to be doing that. I think that's something that's worth doing. Who is the audience you're kind of picturing when you make cartoons about say whether it's a bigoted comedian or someone from the quote-unquote intellectual dark web or like you're saying that atheist guy who criticizes you 
What I'm getting at is there are people who know who Dave Chappelle and J.K. Rowling are, but people outside of the internet don't know why they're so controversial these days. And there are people like Glenn Greenwald or Abigail Schreier, who wrote one of the most transphobic books in the last few years, who, again, it's kind of more like if you're on the internet, if you're a politics junkie, that's how you know about these people. But there's actually a whole world out there who would know what you're talking about. And I'm wondering if that affects... Like, I don't want a, too few people to know what I'm referring to when I make this cartoon. I mean, sometimes I'll do a cartoon and it's entirely, I'm okay with only a few people understanding it. Uh, the Neckbeard cartoon was one. I think there may have been a one or two panel explanation of what the term meant, but basically that was inside baseball. But for most of my cartoons, there are two people I imagine as the audience. Well, three. The first person is me. If I wasn't writing and drawing this cartoon, would I enjoy it? What would I need from this cartoon to be able to follow its line of thought successfully? What would I find funny? And that's honestly my primary audience is me. But also through me, I'm representing a lot of people who think like me, people who tend to agree with me, the supporters of my Patreon. So I'm hoping I'm a little bit representative in that way. The second person I think about is my mom. Because although my mom is incredibly smart and politically engaged, she doesn't live on Twitter the way I do. And so one of the things I think of is, would mom be able to understand this cartoon without me explaining it? Would someone who's a smart liberal reader who reads the New York Times, but not Twitter, understand what I'm talking about and find this entertaining? So that's my second audience is my mom. And the third audience, who's someone who I don't think even reads most of my cartoons, which is Kathy Young, who is a right-wing well, center-right, libertarian-right, libertarian-center, hard to define. Yeah. I guess center-right. Yeah. Columnist who I've known in an online way for probably 20 years now or something, a long time. I didn't realize it was that long. Wow. Because <laughs> we first came in contact when I was writing a blog many years ago and criticized her and she responded and we got into the habit of leaving comments on each other's blogs occasionally. And so our entire long-term relationship is based around friendly disagreement about political issues because she's on the anti-woke side. And I'm using scare quotes when I say woke and I'm on the woke side. And Kathy is never going to like most of my cartoons because most people what determine whether or not they like a cartoon, a political cartoon, by whether or not they agree with it. Most leftists, even smart leftists, cannot tell the difference between a good and a badly crafted political cartoon if it's coming from the right. You know, if it's expressing the right-wing idea, then it's a bad cartoon. And I think it's basically only professional cartoonists who could ever look at a cartoon they strongly disagree with and say, okay, this is a well-crafted gag and the drawing's really nice. But in the case of Kathy, what I'm imagining is, okay, are there any hugely obvious, intellectually dishonest things I'm saying or doing in this cartoon that Kathy if we were having an argument, would point out to me as being intellectually dishonest and that I wouldn't feel that I'm able to defend. Now, obviously with a political cartoon, I do allow myself to do things like humorous exaggeration that wouldn't be as defensible in a face-to-face -face debate. But basically, I use my mental construct of Kathy Young to try and keep myself intellectually honest. So those are the three people I imagine in my audience.
I'm so glad you touched on some of those points, because again, anyone who has never heard of you has never seen your cartoons, and really anyone who I'm a fan of these days on the internet, there's the type of cartoonist I think we're all a little tired of, where it's the classic political cartoon. It's one panel, it's of a somewhat decent portrait of a politician. Sometimes they have to put a button on with their name on it, because otherwise you wouldn't know, because that's what all politicians wear in real life. And it just says a really trite point, like, I'm an evil person. But I want to give an example. This is where people like you differ. This is the first cartoon of yours I ever read. And I just would like to know what your thoughts are all this time later. It's the one about parents who they hypocritically claim that trans-affirming healthcare is immoral because it sexualizes children, but then you show like four panels that shows a father with his daughter growing up. He's like, oh, that boy, look, he's showing off to her. Oh, look, he's her boyfriend. And this is all when she's underage and like, she's gonna wear this little dress for the pageant. But the only thing that really sets them off is this whole, oh, trans kids, they get their pronouns respected and may take puberty blockers. That's where he draws the line. Yeah, I know exactly the cartoon you mean. The title of that cartoon is What Kind of People Sexualize Children? And that one was drawn by Becky Hawkins again. And Becky was, I think Becky may have chosen that one. Becky is like the only person I let see my scripts. And so she'll look at the unillustrated scripts and say, oh, there's what I want to draw. But that was an excellent one for her to draw because it involved, again, moving through the years. So she had to be very aware of fashion and setting. And also it involved being able to fairly accurately draw the horrific fashions used on the children's pageant circuit. <laughs> yeah. Does a cartoon like that demonstrate, like, I can't just make a cartoon saying, oh, this parent's a hypocrite, big arrows, the button on, or some really obvious labels. Like, how do you make a point you're trying to make, which is that people really are okay with, in a heteronormative way, sexualizing children? How do I have a creative way of showing that in a way that isn't just like a trite political cartoon? I mean, that's exactly it. I sit down and say, okay, I want to talk about how our mainstream society consistently sexualizes children in a heterosexual fashion and people are generally okay with that. And then it was just a matter of thinking of examples that in this case, because it flipped from one scene to another, a bunch of examples that could be shown in a single panel and not using labels of everything is kind of a stylistic thing. I don't think there's anything objectively wrong with labeling things. And I've done some cartoons which use labels, but I don't use many because in my generation of cartoonists, we grew up being sick of it rather than growing up liking it. And so we try and find ways to get around doing that. And that's one of the reasons that we tend to do four panel cartoons instead of one panel cartoons, because it's easier to build up and show rather than label what it is you're talking about if you take more panels to do it. Or maybe that we do more panels is why we don't need to use labels as much, one or the other. Actually, funnily enough, sometimes I will write a cartoon that requires labels and Becky will look at it and say, I'm not drawing that. I hate labels. So, right. It's just my style, honestly. It goes back to who I said the first reader is. What would be a way of making this point that if I were reading it, I would find entertaining and a little bit telling? You have a great talent for finding examples of anytime someone's like, oh, well, 
we're all too sensitive now. Like, people back then didn't know blackface, even slavery was bad then, or no one was complaining back then. It wasn't like it was now. You can't judge people with the sensibilities you have in the year 2022. I, I almost don't even know if there's a good question, because I feel like you don't have to look that hard to figure out that that's not true. And I wonder why you like to work that into your cartoons or what that's been like. I mean, I do research those. Some, some of those involve hours of research, and I find it fun. In the end, I think a lot of people are drawn to doing the kind of cartoons that they enjoy making. I've actually never asked Matt Bores about this, but I have a theory that Matt Bores enjoys researching and drawing uniforms because the bad guys in his cartoons very often are wearing police uniforms or military uniforms or whatever, and they're very well-researched and well-drawn. And my suspicion is that Matt just enjoys drawing that sort of thing. So they tend to get written into his cartoons. I enjoy doing things like, okay, I'm going to go back centuries and find quote after quote of people saying the kids today suck. And I find that fascinating and I find doing the research enjoyable where another cartoonist might think of the exact same cartoon and then go, oh God, that sounds horrible. I don't want to do all that. I'd much rather do a cartoon that involves drawing lots of cars. I'm going to think of that idea and go, oh, that sounds fun. But if I think of an idea that requires accurate drawing of cars, I will go, oh God, I'm not going to draw that. I hate drawing cars. You know, I mean, a lot of these things end up reflecting what does a creator enjoy doing? And when I put it that way, it sounds a little bit self-indulgent, and it is, but it's also a pretty solid strategy for producing better work, because what you are motivated to do is what you'll be better at doing. And I think I really would want to know, as we kind of bring this to a wrap, is with the state of the world right now, what kind of cartoons do you think you want to make at the present moment? Is it more of the same or is it just sort of more, do you sometimes think about how can I think outside the box or introduce another topic that isn't normally reflected in online cartoons, which I will point out is another talent of yours. There's a bunch of sometimes contrary impulses. There's an impulse to do cartoons about what I consider the most urgent issues of our time, which I would say are the attack on democracy itself from the right, the global warming. Okay, I would say those are the two most urgent issues right now. If I had to pick just two and say these two, these are the most important, it would be those two. Because all the other issues are in some way dependent on those two issues not turning into other could not be worse disasters. Trans rights is a subject that's really dear to my heart. But if the entire ecology collapses and there's no more democracy in the United States, that will really limit our ability to advance trans rights in any way at all. So that's one thing. And the problem is that cartoons that I do because I think it's an important subject are often ones that aren't very good. A sense of duty isn't a good reason to do a cartoon. Unfortunately, my internal inspiration does not act on command like that. So I've done some cartoons I think are good on that subject, but I've also written many far worse cartoons that I never drew because I write them because, oh God, I have to do something about this issue. I have to. And then the cartoon sucks and I don't want to draw. Another thing is just what am I personally passionate about? Personally passionate about fat advocacy. I'm personally passionate about 
trans rights. So those are wells I'm going to draw from again and again, because they're just something that for whatever reason, those issues call to me. And then also sometimes I'll do more on an issue because people suggest it. Like I've done a couple of cartoons on ableism over the years. And then I've also gotten a little bit of nice email from people saying they enjoy that and could they see more. And that has put me more on the alert for ideas, for cartoons I could do criticizing or making fun of ableism. So there's all these mixed things of reasons I might be doing a cartoon. Going forward, I would like to do more better cartoons. I would like to have brilliant ideas that completely shake up the foundations of how we do this. But truthfully, mostly this is what I do. I do four panel cartoons about political issues from usually a social justice perspective. And when it comes down to it, most of my cartoons are going to fit neatly into that box because it's what I want to do. And it's a form that feels effective to me. When I do long form comics, uh, when I do children's graphic novels, I get a lot more playful about the layout and about the formal aspects of cartooning. And I don't tend to do that much with political cartoons because with political cartoons, I think it's usually about the idea. You want to focus on this one idea and you want to sand it down and present the idea in a pure, eloquent form, as much as I'm capable of doing, which isn't all that much always. And anything that draws attention away from that, any formal experimentation, tends to make the cartoon weaker because it's no longer about that idea. So that's why I, I feel freer to do formal experiments with long-form narratives that I do in a short political cartoon. Barry Deutsch, thank you for joining Drawing Controversy. We look forward to seeing the rest of your work. Thank you for having me. It was really fun chatting with you. Here's another big thank you to Barry Deutsch for coming on the show. This has been Drawing Controversy, a podcast created written, edited, and produced by me, Jordan LHH. The music is by Mikhail Elish. Follow at Drawing Controversy on social media, and we'll catch you next time.